Good morning. Is it on? Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm an elder here at North Shore Church. And I'm saved by the power of Christ, and I thank him for that. I want to read this morning the text, and also if, none of the, or if there are any children that are to go down to Roots, they should go down now, and uh, we'll do that. Okay, thank you. This morning the text has already got a lot of publicity. But it's God's word. Okay. It's Judges chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. 21. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judea and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with them three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the father, girl's father said to her son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him. So he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate both of them. And when the man had his, and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law the girl's father said to him, Behold now, the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived outside of Jebus, that is, Jerusalem, he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were there, near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will go on to Gibneth. And he, said to his young, he, and he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in, in Gibeath or Ramoth. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeath, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go and spend the night at Gibeath. 
And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gilberth. The men at the uh, excuse me, the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And what do you co- where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem to Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkey feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. May God add his blessing to the word like to uh, uh, share with you a prayer, prayer, some prayers this morning. So if you will just join me in prayer. Our Father God, we give honor and glory and praise to you. We sing praises to you and to your son Jesus, who gave his life for us, loves us, and forgives our sins. Your Holy Spirit reveals the real truth of scriptures and guides our understanding. Father, you have been good to North Shore Church, keeping the doors open for those who seek you. You have blessed our ministry teams and community groups with spiritual growth. Father, we call to you to encourage our men in spiritual leadership and to accept positions of responsibility. Lord Jesus, we thank you for caring and supporting our brothers and sisters who struggle with health issues and family unity. Father, you created everything we have to sustain our lives and bless our families in response to our prayers. We ask your blessing on our children and the youth and the leaders who shepherd them. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved with our whole heart and mind and strength. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Direct us to be what we should be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, we look to you now to come and reveal to our hearts and our minds what you want to reveal about yourself. And we do pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit we would meet Almighty God today. Father, we don't need a lecture in theology. We need an encounter with the living God. We pray that you do that through your word, that we might make much of your Son, Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Some of you heard Joe read the story and thought, well, that didn't sound so bad. The part to come. (laughs) 
that's the part that uh, is a little bit different. Uh, we're in Judges, as you can tell, we're right to chapter 19. Um, this is the last section of the book of Judges. This is the beginning of the last story in the book of Judges. Like chapter 17 and 18, this sordid account reveals the rebellion of God's people during this especially dark chapter of Israel's history. The previous two chapters revealed the, the religious decay, that is the decay of God's religion, Judaism, and how that was practiced. This section brings the decay and looks at a wider angle lens at the whole culture. So this looks at the general moral decay among all the people in this particular story. None of the characters are named in the story, which is the author's way of saying this represents everybody. I'm not singling any one individual. This is just the way the culture ebbed and flowed at this point in time. The particular narrative, as we've said, is, is hideous and gruesome. One of the more disgusting stories in the Bible, just in terms of the, what is done, what is described. The cause of the sin is the same as we saw in chapter 17 and 18. This story, which we're only going to introduce today, at the very beginning of the story and at the very end of the story, are almost identical words, and that is, in those days Israel had no king. Okay, That's the author's way of giving us a lens through which to understand these hideous events. It's his way of saying these horrific events that I'm going to tell you and that I just told you are just the natural consequences when a people outgrow outgrow their need for God and his reign in their lives. This story represents what happens when a culture practices spiritual autonomy. I'm good. I got this, God. Thank you. Some might wonder why we don't just skip over this particular text because it's so explicit. The first reason is because the same God who inspired the first 18 chapters of Judges inspired these last as well. And that means the Holy Spirit wants us to know these chapters and to learn from them. Second, because Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means that God placed this story with its admittedly disgusting details in the Bible for our prophet, to teach and to correct and to equip us. We need to believe that. When Paul says all Scripture, he's talking about Judges 19, 20, and 21. And this story, frankly, seldom in church history could be more appropriate for a culture because this story is an, is an inspired template, if you will, for what happens when God is removed from a culture. And as those who live in a land where God is rapidly being expunged from the popular culture, we need to be able to rightly recognize that and to know how to respond to it. Now, I hope you hear that we're comparing the events of this story to our broader culture and not mainly the church. That's different. Ideally, and most of the time, the stories of God's Old Testament people should be applied primarily to God's New Testament people, okay? But the Jews described here are so paganized, they're living exactly like the pagans, it's fitting to aptly, or I should say, to apply most of the lessons we learn from them to the broader culture. That's why we're going there. 
I hope you hear that when we're comparing the events of the story to our broader culture and not mainly the church, we need to take some precautions. One of the precautions we need to take is we need to not do what is so easy to do, and that is to sit back and look at our culture, which is decaying, and in self-righteousness sit here and whine and complain and cluck our tongues in in that self-righteous indignation. That's not what God calls us to do. We're going to be looking at a text in just a bit to help us to know what God's response is to that, how we're to respond at that. Okay, the first character we meet in this story is another Levite, another because we had a Levite in last week's story, another priest like the one we met in 17 and 18. But this priest in this story has a concubine. Now, concubines in the ancient Near East were a strange hybrid in terms of the the woman's role. These women were considered slaves and were the property of their masters, okay? Their primary purpose, as you might imagine, was to provide gratification to the men who owned them. However, concubines were also legally married to their owners and could even be legal heirs to the estate. So concubines, as one scholar describes them, were essentially second-class wives. Okay? They had some legal standing, but they basically served to provide for the pleasure of their masters. Now, even though the patriarchs had concubines, and David and Solomon and the rest of the kings, or at least most of them anyway, had concubines, we must never take from that that God approved of this. This was an ungodly, self-centered abuse of women by a godless, woman-degrading culture that was influenced far more by the Canaanites than it was by Yahweh. And as in this story, Old Testament stories where concubines are highlighted, this is without exception, Like a concubine is highlighted in this story, made a feature of this story. In every one of those stories, never is that practice put in a positive light. Not once. And the author always implicitly reveals what a destructive practice this is. Just like every time in the Old Testament you see polygamy, that's always bad. That never works out. That's the author's way of communicating. This isn't from God. Concubines weren't from God. Polygamy wasn't from God. Now the fact that this Levite, a priest of God, has a concubine should immediately trigger uh, the understanding that this is not exactly the high watermark of spirituality among the Jewish people. If You've got a priest that has a concubine. Now this concubine may have been unfaithful to the Levite and then left him for her father's house. And the reason I say may have been unfaithful is because the scholars don't agree on whether the Hebrew language here conveys that she committed adultery or that she was simply angry with him. In fact, the Greek and the Aramaic translations, Aramaic was the language Jesus spoke, those translations of the Old Testament translate verse 2, she was angry with him. So there's no unfaithfulness communicated. Whatever the case... The Levite waits four months for her to return and then decides to retrieve her. The father of the concubine is initially revealed as a very friendly, very hospitable sort. He persistently requests his son-in-law to stay and make merry with him. And four times he gets him to lay his trip home. 
Finally, the Levite has had enough of this man's hospitality, and on the fifth day, in the late afternoon part of that day, he leaves with his concubine, a servant, and two donkeys. And so he sets out in the direction of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem then was called Jebus and was controlled by Canaanites. The Levites' late start from Bethlehem turns out to be a really important detail. By the time they get as far as Jebus, they're running out of daylight. And the Levite doesn't want to stay in Jebus. In fact, he calls it the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. Okay? Don't miss the irony here. The Levite refuses to stay among the pagans in favor of the Jews. But as the events of the story unfold, it's very clear that the moral climate among the Jews is just as bad or worse than it is among the pagans. So they go past Jebus and they end up arriving in Gibeah, the Jewish tribal area called Benjamin, where they did what ancient Near Eastern people arriving at night in a strange city typically did when they needed a place to stay when no one had offered a place to stay. That is, they go to the city square. city square was a gathering place where you would go if you needed a job in the day, or at night it was a place where you would go if you needed a place to stay. Okay? And in the ancient Near Eastern world, everybody knew that, and everybody basically knew that part of my responsibility as part of this community is to take people in. That's just the way it was. Nobody comes out until finally an old man offers the Levite and his companions a place to spend the night. Okay? The old man clearly knew the moral climate of this town because he pointedly tells these people, do not remain outside in the city square. Okay? The old man attends to the Levite's needs. They're eating and drinking when spiritual darkness envelops this old man's house. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. This story and what follows is one of the most sickening stories in the Bible. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this sounds familiar to you. And the reason it sounds familiar to you is because the author tells this story in such a way that he's inviting you to make comparisons with what is recorded much earlier in Genesis 19, which is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? You'll recall that story. Abraham's nephew Lot was living among the godless pagans in this town of Sodom, and he's visited by two angels who are in human form. And the wicked men of Sodom take notice of these angels and come to Lot's house, and they make the exact same request of Lot that these wicked men in Gibeah 
make of this old man about his Levite guest. The similarities between these two accounts are remarkable. Scholars have found at least 10 distinct parallels between Genesis 19 and Judges 19. Add to that, the author intentionally uses the same vocabulary and he employs the same writing style as Genesis 19. It's clear that the author is intentionally wanting us to call up images of Sodom. The similarities between these accounts and the story in Genesis 19 is a subtle but very powerful way that the Holy Spirit-inspired author is saying, at the time of the judges, Israel, here represented by Benjamin, Gibeah, Israel had become Sodom. This is what happens when the people of God do what is right in their own eyes, and they refuse the reign of Yahweh. They become just like the worst sinners imaginable. They become Sodomites. That's implied in the way these stories are written. That's the implicit message he's trying to make. As it relates to God, God's people, that's the main message of the story. We see this today when backslidden believers, during their time in the wilderness of sin, in their shame-ridden misery, and if you're backslidden and you're not shame-ridden, you're not backslidden, you're lost. <laughs> But we see this when a truly backslidden person in their shame and misery, those people can do things as wickedly as anybody else because their flesh is of the same quality as the old man. Notice some telling details about the story. The men of Gibeah explicitly demand the Levite. Okay? They're intentional here. He's their main target here. They're not interested in the young man's virgin daughter. That tells us that these men are homosexuals. But our predominant impression of these men should not be that they're homosexuals. That's true. Predominantly what they are is sexual predators, violent men who take what they want by force. But notice that when they refuse the Levite, they opt to abuse the Levite's concubine. Okay? Why do these wicked men prefer the concubine to the innocence of the old man's daughter? We aren't told, but we get a very strong hint through the phrase the author uses to refer to these men, which is translated worthless men, but which literally means men of the sons of Belial, which, as one scholar points out, is a phrase used elsewhere in the Old Testament to characterize murderers, rapists, false witnesses, corrupt priests, drunks, boors, rebels, and those who lead others into idolatry and who do not know Yahweh. This phrase marks these men off as men controlled or at least strongly influenced by spiritual darkness, demonic influence. Paul uses the same expression in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, where he asks the question, what accord has Christ with Belial? So he uses Belial as a synonym for Satan. The author probably wants us to understand that there is an unseen spiritual element underlying the events of this horrible scene. And so he portrays these men as sons of the devil who are impelled by a dark spiritual force and who hate Yahweh. Their intention is not only sexual gratification. What ultimately drives them is their desire to defile one of God's priests. What ultimately drives them is their desire to defile one of God's priests. And lacking the opportunity to defile a priest, they settle for the priest's wife or concubine. As we'll discuss more later, 
both the Levite and the old man act with glaring cowardice. The Levite shoves his concubine out the door and reduces her to scraps thrown to hungry animals. The old man, in a grossly disordered desire to protect his honor as the host of this Levite, unbelievably offers his own virgin daughter to these ravenous animals. The tragic result is that these wicked men of Gibeah end up preying upon this Levite's concubine until just before dawn. Again, this is one of those stories in the Bible that we don't like to think too deeply about because it is so, it is so disgusting. But we must never forget what happened to this woman whose husband not only failed to protect her, but who offered her up to these men. This story illustrates the kind of things that happen in a culture where God is dismissed. What began as a, as a marital problem between a Levite and his concubine has in this godless Benjamite context quickly degenerated into a horrifically debauched situation that will eventually involve the entire nation when you get into chapters 20 and 21. The chapter concludes beginning with verse 27, And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her, limb by limb, into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. The utter callousness of this Levite is more than astonishing. He seemingly gets up in the morning, visibly unaffected by the awareness that his concubine, his wife, has been gang raped all night. He gives the impression that the most important thing on his agenda that day is to get an early start on the day. There's no emotion display, there's no sense of anger, there's no desire for retribution. He doesn't go searching for her at first daylight. The only reason he discovers her is because he basically trips over on the way out. He sees her with her hands reaching out towards the door for protection, for his protection, and as she lays outstretched on the threshold, his heartless response is simply to say, get up, let us be going. Okay? So your concubine, your legal wife, is being raped all night, and you see her, and you said, get up, let's go. This man, this is a priest of God, is as much a monster as the men of Gibeah. That's what we're supposed to see here. He hoists her up on his donkey, and he takes her home, and then methodically butchers her. And we know from the way that it's written, he's cutting her up in the same way that a priest would cut up a sacrificial animal. He's a priest. The author is intentionally very ambiguous about who murdered her. Was it the men of Gibeah or the Levite? Now, the Levite later accuses the men of Gibeah, and that may be true, but by the time he blames the rapists, the author has taught us not to trust this creep. We don't know for certain, and the ambiguity there is intentional. And it's to show us that all of these men are depraved, not just the sexual predators of Gibeah. 
There's a whole lot more to the story that we'll get into later on. The rest of Judges reveals the response of the Jews to this and how that ripple effect really brought disaster on the entire nation, one tribe in particular. For today, we want to focus on how this story very graphically portrays the characteristics of a culture where God has been rejected. The characteristics of a culture where God has been rejected. As we notice these characteristics, our hope is this, that we'll look with much more discernment at our own culture that is being increasingly paganized by those who have outgrown their need for God. We want to list from this story three characteristics of a culture that has been morally imploded. But again, I want to go back Asterisk. Whenever we're looking at a culture, a fallen culture, and we're being critical of it, we must not be self-righteous. We must not cluck our tongues. It's very easy to get amens by describing how rotten the world we live in is. That's not the response the Bible teaches us. Okay? Paul gives us the right response in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's just listed some of the more scandalous elements of this sinful world that the church was participating in. But after that, he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The truth is we must never forget that the only thing separating us from the fallen culture is the sheer grace of God. Okay? If we get that, if we really get that in our hearts, we will not be sitting around clucking our tongues at the godless culture around us. Instead, we'll be working to find ways to bring the redemptive influence of Christ into our world. That's what a gospel-shaped life does. We are not called to separate from the culture. We're called to integrate into the culture integrate into the culture in the hope of bringing influence of Christ to it. We're not called to separate from the culture in the hope of remaining untainted by it. Jesus says we're in the world, we're not of the world. That means we don't have the option of separating ourselves from the culture and whining about the darkness. It is what it is. The church is called to do something far more challenging than separate. In fact, something that's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, the church's relationship to the world is to be like salt that's rubbed into meat to help preserve it. That is, we're to rub up against the world to influence it, while at the same time not being tainted, not being defiled by it. Okay? Now sadly, 2,000 years of church history revealed that the church has too often tended to either separate from the culture and go monastic, and therefore have little, if any, redemptive influence for Christ, or the church integrates into the culture, but instead of bringing the influence of Jesus to it, they instead become tainted by the culture. So we don't want to whine about the godlessness of the culture, but it is helpful for us to use stories like this one to sharpen our discernment about the culture, because that can embolden us to influence it. If we're able to analyze what's going on and seeing this is just what happens, we should expect this. It's easier for us, having been allowed to be analytical through the Scriptures, for us to then be emboldened to say, this is just the way it is, so I'm going to proclaim Christ. Okay, that's, that's the idea. Three characteristics of a culture that is in decline, a culture that has exited God, a culture that has dismissed God. Number one, a blurring of the lines between the good people and the bad people. A blurring of the lines between the good people and the bad people. 
as God's people become tainted by the world, it becomes harder and harder to separate them from the world. This is one reason this story is so complex. Just when you think you've figured out who the good guys and the bad guys are, the characters shatter your preconceptions. The concubine is introduced to us as, at best, a woman who has abandoned her husband and master, and at worst, is an adulteress. Yet this woman ends up being the victim of the story, who is utterly degraded in life and death, and who has all of our sympathy. The old man is introduced to us as a warm, hospitable sort who puts up a needy family for the night. But in the end, he gutlessly offers to throw his own virgin daughter and his guest concubine to these animals who come knocking at his door. The Levite is introduced as a priest of God who for four months patiently waits for his wife to return to him. He finally humbles himself and travels to her father-in-law to retrieve her. Verse 19, or verse 3 of chapter 19 says, to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Yet as the story unfolds, this Levite reveals himself to be one of the most contemptible characters in the Bible. The Levite we saw last week in chapters 17 and 18 is genuinely good for nothing. But he's a saint of God compared to this guy, this callous man who treats his wife created in God's image like a sacrificial animal. This Levite, when you factor in that he's a priest of Yahweh, he's as wicked as any of those rapists in Gibeah. Underneath the old man's pleasant hospitality is a heart of wickedness, and beneath the Levite's superficial concern for his wife is horrific and callous evil. Do you hear the way those lines become hopelessly blurred. That's the point of the story. You can't tell the good guys from the bad guys. Does this sound familiar to you? Isn't this more and more the way it is in our culture? A vaunted civil rights leader. And we discover that his private life is marked by serial sexual sin. A beloved comedian who lectures on the family turns out to be a sexual predator pedophile clergy. These are people in our culture that we have looked to for moral leadership, yet they're increasingly revealing themselves to be part and parcel of the moral collapse. These stories barely surprise us anymore. Someone has said, we're losing all our heroes. Second characteristic of a culture where God is no longer important is deceived and godless people increasingly dominate day-to-day life. Deceived and godless people increasingly dominate day-to-day life. The longer a culture is in collapse, the healthier elements of society increasingly recede and are replaced by increasingly darker elements. People who'd run the town of Gibeah were these homosexual marauders. The streets and the visitors belonged to them and they appear to rule a community unchallenged. Now, we know that these kind of people are in every culture, but from the story, we have to surmise that these men in Gibeah mercilessly control the public life after sunset. Again, sign of moral collapse in our own culture is more evident than ever before, and the decline is picking up speed at an alarming rate. Ten years ago, We were told by the prevailing culture that you were a hater if you do not quietly tolerate the homosexual agenda. Today, the culture labels you a hater if you do not enthusiastically celebrate the homosexual agenda. 
And the reason is because ungodly, deceived people increasingly dominate public opinion. Okay? Although there remains many fine public school educators and officials, the overarching intelligentsia behind public education at all levels is being more and more dominated by godless people whose agenda is not to educate our young people, but to indoctrinate them with a worldview that is godless. Deceived and godless people are increasingly controlling the culture. Third characteristic of the dismissal of God in a culture is weak and defenseless people are exploited, oppressed, and sacrificed. This concubine has no social standing, no political clout, and so she's free to be done away with, slaughtered, without consequence. Sound familiar? Many of the influencers of our popular culture would rightly be revolted by the way that this woman is treated so horrifically. They would, they would, they would move back from this story. But at the same time, they're blind to the fact that they're treating the unborn exactly the same way. The unborn in much of our culture are viewed as the property of the woman who bears the child. They have no political role, they have no social standing, so they're easily dispensed with in the name of choice or so-called women's reproductive health. The unborn, like this woman, are butchered and then carted off as medical waste. Legalized abortion on demand isn't just about sanctioning the taking of unborn life. It's a clear sign of the moral collapse of our culture that has chosen to have little, if any, room for God who created these unborn children and who bear his image. When this concubine was brutally raped and her body vivisected, even the paganized Jews were incensed by this. That's a reminder for the church, even though it's been... Since 1972, we should still be repulsed. One of the more sobering details of this text is found in chapter 20, verse 28, which we didn't read. The only person mentioned in the entire account who is named explicitly is a priest named Phineas. And the reason that detail is so revealing is because this man named Phineas is called the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. That means that this Phineas is part of the generation that died after Joshua, or that rose up after Joshua died. Okay? That means this story takes place within 40 years after the death of Joshua. The point is that these people, who not all that long before this sordid event were trusting God and moving into the promised land, had totally lost their spiritual uniqueness by this point. Gibeah had become Sodom in a very short amount of time. The point for us is though Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that does not mean in any way that there is a guarantee that the North American church will remain a redemptive influence. Read the letters of the seven churches of Revelation. You'll notice that for the past millennia there have been no gospel witnesses in places like Ephesus and Sardis and Theatira and Pergamum. Christ removed his lampstand as he promised. There there are a lot of mosques in that area right now. Christ will build his church, but that promise doesn't obligate him to build it here. In my lifetime, we have seen the center of God's global activity shift dramatically from the west to the east. God's global center, as we talked about in Sunday school, 
is not been and has not been in the so-called Christian West for decades. David Wells is right when he says the Spirit of God rests lightly on the North American church. Slight influence. Still there, hasn't gone anywhere. He rests lightly on the North American church. Compared to places like Africa and Asia, which is where God is really working dramatically and powerful and consistently, there's very little evidence of his work here compared to those places. Although the state of the church in America is better than it's often portrayed to be in the media, a sweeping revival has to be the only answer for the church in North America to have significant cultural influence. We should all be praying for that. Well, what, what if any hope is there? This has been pretty bleak so far. What, what hope is there for us, for a, for a church in the midst of a paganized culture? Well, it's here, and it's found in the redemptive history of the Old Testament. Israel remained paganized and debauched for most of its history, but there was a brief period of significant spiritual awakening, and it occurred not long after the period of the judges. Why? And the reason why is because God gave them a king after his own heart, King David. Although not perfect, as we know, David's reign brought sweeping reform, the temple was readied, and to some extent the people began to authentically worship God. There was a taste of revival because a godly king had been brought to the throne by Yahweh. That's our hope. The difference is that our king is infinitely better than David. On David's best day, he couldn't stand in the shadow of Jesus Christ. Our hope will ultimately be realized when Jesus returns and destroys his enemy and claims his bride, the church, but we must not find our hope only there. That's a cop-out if that's the only place where we're finding hope. As by God's grace, the church returns to recognize the reign of King Jesus. Revival can come, and in God's limitless grace, our culture can be pulled back from the brink of destruction. That happens one person at a time, one church at a time, one community at a time. And the question is, where are you? Where are you? Are you seeking to have a more radical witness for Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to live more authentically for him? Are you more sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Do you have an increased love for God's people, an increased love for the word of God, an increased carefulness in hearing from God, a, a more intense prayer life? Those are signs that God is reviving you. If you don't have those things, you need to be praying for that. You need to be confessing that to other believers. That's not normal if you're not expressing those kind of qualities. The normal Christian life is to be desperately in love with Jesus Christ. Normal meaning according to the norm. To be enraptured by Jesus. Are you there? Are you moving in that direction? Don't allow the decline of our culture to dishearten you. Look to King Jesus and find hope. May God give all of us the grace to see the culture as he sees it and to live boldly for Christ, for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, the events in this story are hideous. Thank you for recording them for us. Thank you for teaching us. And Father, we've only given a couple lessons here. There are many more. Father, help us to be sobered, that we live in a place that has such wickedness and that is moving in the right, wrong direction. 
But God, help us not to be disheartened because greater is he that is in you, the church, than he that is in the world. Jesus has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. They defeated the the, the devil by the, the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and by the fact that they did not love life even unto death. Father, your power, the power of your blood has not diminished. The power of the Holy Spirit has not in any way weakened. God, enable us to read the Bible and believe. Give us the faith to believe for our own lives, for our families, our marriages, for this church, this community, and this nation, that we, by your grace, might be the city set on a hill. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.